Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, joining me by phone um, is a very, very special guest, consultant, trainer, and owner of Finding Hope Consultant. I am very excited to have with me Mary Vicario. Hi, Mary. Hi, LaShonda. Thanks for having me. Of course, I'm very honored to have you. So I'm going to jump right in and start by asking you what I ask so many of my guests, uh, all of my guests when they join me, and that is to ask, what is your labor of love? So, wow, great question. I've been thinking about this for since you invited me to be on the podcast. And my labor of love is to help anyone of any age or any ability level to identify, not just identify, to develop the resilience they need to um, rise above any challenging experiences they have had or maybe caught in so that they can create for themselves the life they want instead of recreating a life they came from. Very well put. Thank you so much. Um, So we'll get into a little bit later about how awesome you are at doing that very labor of love. But before we get there, um, can you tell us a little bit about how it became a passion and a labor of love for you? This building and helping people build resilience no matter where they've come from or where they find themselves currently. How'd you get there? So it it was... um... It was a long road, probably, but it started um, when I was very young. Um, my father is a World War II concentration camp liberator, and um, that definitely had an impact on the way he viewed the world and his belief system about how we need to function in our world. So every day when I would come home from school, he would usher me into the parlor because he grew up in New England, so he didn't, we didn't have a living room. We had a parlor. And in the parlor, we had an altar to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, an altar to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and an altar to John Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. Yeah, I was ready when the nuns asked who's the Holy Trinity. I was like, yes, Jesus, Mary, and John Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) Every day, starting with kindergarten, I'd come home from school, and Dad would have me kneel in front of Jesus and tell him one thing I did that helped someone else. That I had to kneel in front of Mary and tell her something different I did to help another person. And then my mama came in to make sure I was not kneeling in front of John Kennedy mm. as I told him a third thing I had done to make the world a better place. And so that kind of just became a part of, I think, the way I saw the world. That was a huge gift he gave me. I also started my career as a teacher right as the crack epidemic was hitting And several years into my teaching career, a young lady 
was brought to my classroom. I was a second grade teacher at the time. She was probably about nine years old, maybe even 10, actually, much older than the other students in the class. And she had been found in a crack house. No one knew she had existed. She had never seen the outside of a crack house. She had pulled out all of her hair. She would only eat out of a garbage can. It was quite challenging to uh, teach her. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was in my late 20s, and I, I just didn't know what to do. And I was getting very frustrated. And one day, one of my second grade students, he was probably all of seven years old, maybe eight, he came to the door at lunchtime because the young lady who we will call Sarah, even though that wasn't her real name, he said, do you mind if I put a good lunch in the, in the garbage can for Sarah today? So he put a tray of lunch food in the garbage can and Sarah picked it up and gobbled it down. And I was just amazed. And after a few days, he said, do you mind if I sit and have lunch with her? So they sat on the floor and had lunch together. And then a few days later, he was like, do you mind if um, I uh, actually said to Sarah, he said, Sarah, it's a little cold on the floor. So I'm going to put my food here on the chair. He ate with his tray on the chair and she tried it. And then a little while after that, he said, it's still cold sitting on the floor, so I'm going to put my food on the table and sit in the chair, but you don't have to. I'll never forget that seven-year-old saying to her, you don't have to. Because in my teacher brain, I'm like, but that's what you want her to do. Why don't you tell her she has to do it? Mm. And she just watched him. And I think now, when I look back on it, with her permission to say no, she found the courage to say to him, why doesn't the white foam come out of your mouth when you eat at the table? Mm, wow. She said, what white foam? She said, my sister and I were really hungry in the house we used to live in, and we found a, a rock on the table, and my sister ate it, and white foam came out of her mouth, and she started shaking, and none of the adults would help me, and I promised her if she didn't die, we'd never eat out of, off of a table again. And, uh, I'm sitting at my desk crying, and this little seven-year-old just very innocently looks at her and goes, no rocks on our tables. It's really okay to eat here. There'll be no white fault, <laughs> very matter-of-factly. And sure enough, the next day, she was eating at the table with him. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to learn how to do for people what this young man just knew how to do from who he was. Oh, my goodness. So powerful. Thank you. So I went back to school and... and uh, became a counselor and specialized in abused children between the ages of two and 10 and uh, learned a lot about helping people build resilience because it's, it's hard to get kids out of difficult situations at that age. So instead of saying, well, their environment's not going to change. So there's nothing I can do and releasing them and a wonderful supervisor who said, it's our job to help them find the resilience they need so that when they eventually leave, they don't recreate what they came from. Mm. They can actually choose what they want. And that has become my passion ever since. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Thank you for asking. Yes, you are welcome. Um, and so I know, and I, I talk about Mary Vicari all the time, and she is very, very humble. Um, but to those of my listeners who are in the, at least the tri-state area, of Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, but even with her growing footprint across the nation and internationally, you know, Mary Vicario is very much known as one of the very preeminent <laughs> trauma specialists and trainers that I really had the pleasure of getting to know professionally and personally. 
And so how Mary and I got connected and um, now that I think about it, I don't know if I've actually kind of shared this, but growing up, I didn't really have a lot of like, so like role models, that's not even the right word. You know, when you're a kid and someone says like, who do you want to be or what do you want to be? One, I hate that question because really what they're asking you is how do you want to make money and how I make money is not how I be, but that's a whole different podcast and discussion. So I I knew then they were asking me, how do you want to make money? But you know, what do you want to be? Which I think teaches young people a very unhelpful lesson. But to that effect, the question of kind of what do you want to do and who do you look to, to want to do that? And I gotten asked that question throughout the lifespan and I had a really difficult time coming up with an answer. I, yeah, I just, you know, some people grew up really loving Wonder Woman or all of these different things. And I did not have kind of this image or iconic person projected before me that it's like, I want to do that. Um, But I was working for a mental health community, mental health agency and uh, a free training opportunity presented itself. And I was transitioning into a position Uh, where I would be training other people in this agency. And it was in a neighboring county from where I worked. And I went to this training and um, it was a training being conducted by two women, uh, Mary Vicario and Carol Hudgens. And I finished the training, not even the whole, I think it was a series, but some way where partly through the training, I looked and I pointed in my mind at Mary Mary and said, that's it. That's what I want to do. So it was kind of like this first time that I had seen something in someone in front of me that's like that. I want to do that. And I don't even necessarily know, Mary, if I knew what that was. Um, It wasn't I wasn't unfamiliar with speaking in front of a group of people, even though this was a very large group of people. So I can't even tell you what year it was, but Butler County had hosted you all. And so this was a big room, the the double the double conference room and hundreds of people. So it wasn't just that she was standing in front of a group of people um, talking, but there was just something about the way she wove in story, um, the way she helped these very complex concepts become easy to understand um, and all of that. And I was not working directly with people at the time. So I wasn't a clinician. I wasn't a therapist. So it wasn't even about the concept she was teaching being applicable for my work, but somehow I knew that what I was learning would be life-changing for me, period. So that was my introduction to Mary. And um, if I ever kind of started talking about it, people were like, oh yeah, Mary Vicario. So when I, my position at this organization morphed and I became the person responsible for training agency-wide, one of the first things I wanted to do was bring Mary Vicario in. And I remember organizing a meeting with you, Mary. Um, It was after one of the training series that I was in and you so graciously um, met with me. We went to a Mexican restaurant that was right down the street in Fairfield. And when we sat down, one of the first things I said to you was, hey, in about a year or so, I'm going to need an internship. Not important for this meeting. 
we don't have to talk about that. Just log that away and uh, <laughs> and we'll see where it goes. And so sure enough, I did some work to kind of help be the liaison between Mary and this organization. And she came in and did some trainings and things. But sure enough, I mean, because I believe at that time I was just either considering going back to grad school or had just started. Um, but when I needed an internship, I contacted Mary and she met with me when we met. I had my twins were in carriers because I remember bringing both yeah, of them. I remember. Um, oh so they were, you know, you know, several months old, maybe eight months old or so, and brought them to the restaurant. And we sat and talked. And I guess the rest is history <laughs> in the sense that we've kind of been very connected in that way. Um, and I tell that story just so people can get an idea of the influence that Mary Vicario has had on me personally, but also my work. I've often uh, said that, you know, without Mary Vicario and Finding Hope, there is no labors of love because I learned so much about um, what it was to be a trauma champion and what it meant to do this work very authentically. What I can appreciate was it was never about, um, so here's an example that I've had a lot of times in spiritual spaces where you see the person who's in front presenting, but then you get to know them behind the scenes and there is a discongruence (laughs) between who everyone sees and what they do in their daily life. And what I could appreciate about Mary is what I saw being presented to the people was how she lived her life. And so that was very inspirational to me. And so um, while we do similar work, very similar work, we definitely have two different um, personalities and gifts and skill sets. And so um, I always appreciated how much Mary was gracious in regards to bringing me into spaces and giving me access to people that I may otherwise not have had access to. And from the very beginning, when I started my internship, something that I told my husband, I said, I feel so valued. The experience of intern can be such a lowly one, especially depending on what industry you're in, where it's kind of, you know, they don't even have names. They just call them intern, right? You know, they don't have an identity. They're just there to do the work no one else wants to do. Um, And that was so not my experience. And from the very beginning, Mary brought me in and she wanted to learn from and utilize my gifts that I brought. Like I'm the intern, but yet she was constantly letting me know that she was learning from me and growing with me. And that was huge. So Mary, that is my very uh, public way of saying what I have said to you before, but wanting to say again, how much gratitude I have for you for finding hope and for all of the seeds that you've planted and watered in me personally and in labors of love. Like I'm just, I, such a a debt of gratitude that I have for you. Well, thank you. And I did learn and still continue to learn so much from you. And whenever we get to train together, I love that. It's like such a gift. I, we have fun. (laughs) We We have fun. Yes, we do. So your labor of love, you know, building resilience and um, people, can you tell the listeners a little bit about like practically, what does that look like? And um, I I was thinking about asking the question, what is the, what is a a day or week in the life of Mary Vicario? But that is uh, craziness. So maybe... Maybe not necessarily that, but, but for a person yeah. who, you know, is interested in just you and what you do with finding hope, what can you tell us about that? Okay. So, 
so what I do now, correct? Yeah. Finding hope? Yeah. Okay. So, um, gosh, I have several different contracts, which I just love. Um, one is the Hamilton County Strong Family Safe Communities Grant, and we work with individuals with developmental disabilities and who have experienced trauma. And some, um, well, when we first started the grant eight, almost eight years ago now, it was for people with developmental disabilities who had experienced trauma and were not interested in traditional therapy. And our goal was to help them build those resi- the resilience factors that I frequently talk about from the work of Valentine and Fine Hour um, Agency, which is a fancy name for the ability to have power with others instead of feeling like you have to have power over. Um, self-esteem, which is sense of self, self-worth, and self-efficacy. External supports, which is looking for any, anything outside of yourself or even a positive fantasy you can create in your mind. So when you said, I, you know, it's not like I had Wonder Woman. For the people who did have Wonder Woman, that was an external support. Mm-hmm. You probably had other external supports. Yeah. Um, affiliation, the ability to feel connected to something larger than yourself. And um, most importantly, um, I say you meaning everyone, because we can all be a resilience factor for someone else, because whenever someone's connected with a safe, positive adult, that is a very strong resilience factor. So um, our goal was to build those in people by connecting them in the community, and it has just blossomed from there, and we started working with adults. Now we get to work with youth and their families. We have therapists that are trained in it, so when people do want therapy, there can be a therapeutic component. They've now added a parent support component, so there's a resilience worker for the individual. There's a parent support person for the parents, um, and there's therapy available for anyone and everyone, and I get to be the trauma consultant, and I just love that piece. Awesome. So I do that. So that's one. We are uh, working with the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities and helping them make their developmental centers trauma responsive. And that's probably my um, another quite quite a powerful passion of mine. So we get to go all around the state and work in the developmental centers and help them. Um, apply some neuroscience-based ways to help people experience felt safety, which you know, LaShonda, is very different than real safety, mm-hmm. and then build their resilience. And then I also just do random trainings, and I offer a trauma-responsive care certification, um, which you can get through the Tri-State Trauma Network, or some agencies actually bring me into their agency, and we make their agency trauma-responsive. So you're right. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a whole lot. <clears throat> and as the intern who used to manage your calendar at one point in time, it is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, for my listeners, um, just helping them understand the distinction. So trauma informed care is kind of a, a term that's been used, I would say upwards of about what, 10, 12 years now of people kind of saying, you know, 
um, people, places, establishments, organizations need to be trauma informed. And the way I describe it is trauma informed simply informs you that trauma exists. <laughs> and so yes. what I have <clears throat> been learning and studying and, and dedicating so much of my life work to, um, as Mary was talking about, is how do we move from being trauma informed to trauma responsive? And um, Mary, there is a a key fundamental kind of shift that you help people understand. So trauma informed is what versus trauma responsive. So trauma informed is when you switch the question from what's wrong with you, which I call uninformed to what happened to you. And then trauma responsive is when you ask, and what did you do to survive? Because hidden in those survival skills is the kernel of resilience that you can now help grow so the person can create the life they want instead of recreating what they came from. Yes, thank you. And and so when I talk about developmental and relational trauma and I talk about templates, you know, that is where we've come from. Kind of this idea that here are, you know, this is where things go and this is how our life has functioned. And being trauma-informed means that we can even look at ourselves and say, well, it's not what's wrong with me. It's what happened to me. And it gives us some, hopefully some levels of compassion and it helps us to, to, you know, deal with ourselves in a way that breeds understanding and compassion, but it doesn't really tell us what to do with it really. So I am trying to help people through developmental and relational trauma become trauma responsive, even to themselves. What did I do to survive? So when we have the response that we are like, oh, why do I act like that? I hate that about myself. How did that help you survive? When we look at addiction, how did that help you survive? And then helping people build on the resilience they have and develop strategies and behaviors belief systems and worldviews that can replace the ones they've had previously before they can just let it go. And so that's the work that, you know, I began learning under Mary's tutelage of how to do that with other people, all the while understanding too, with working with Healing Our Core Issues and Dr. Rick Buss and Jan Bergstrom, that there's a component of this that people need for themselves. And so being able to bring those things together, the things I'm learning um, across all of these experiences, as well as when I talk about racial trauma and how that is impacting so many people, I love being able to kind of put all of these things together and help people kind of look at, they don't have to behave the way that they have been have been behaving when they felt like they were in survival mode. Some people are still in survival mode and we honor that. And some have been in it so long, they feel that they still are. And so awareness breeds choice. So what I love about all of this is how can I help people be aware so that they even know they have a choice? Making the choice is way down the line. We ain't even talking about making the choice. We're just talking about realizing that a choice is there. And so I definitely am saying that Mary has had such a fundamental part in, you know, who I've become as a professional. Can you share with us some of the people and places? um, So you talked a lot about your father and kind of those very early installations of what am I, what are you, what have you done to make the world a better place? But are there other people, organizations and things that you want to kind of lift up into helping you become the person you are professionally? Oh, yes. 
Yes. Um, gosh, one is relational cultural theory and it's the work of Jean Baker Miller. And that, um, came into my life probably in the, yeah, the late eighties, early nineties. And, um, how powerful her work was that what was once seen as um, less than work, often called women's work, actually is the work in the healing in which all relationship grows. All relationships occur in connection and I mean, all growth occurs in relationship and all relationships are embedded in culture. And that was just so eye-opening to me and um, had such a spin of we're about connection. We're not about figuring out how to do it on our own and stand on our own two feet because that's never really what's happening. And then Amy Banks um, brought in some of the neuroscience of relational connection. And from there I sprung board into Dan Siegel's work and Lou Casalino's work. Um, so I love the neuroscience of connection because in that is the neuroscience of healing. Um, and yeah, I just started being really passionate about going back and forth to conferences where I could see people training and um, sharing with us this neuroscience of hope is what it feels like to me. Mm. Neuroscience of changing the brain, not that, oh, this terrible things happened to you and now your brain is damaged for life. No, here's neuroplasticity. And here's how you can change the brain. Here's neurogenesis. Oh, my gosh. You can actually grow new brain cells, you know, not just new neural connections. And that is my passion. That is so amazing. Um, when you talked about um, relational cultural theory and Jean Baker Miller, um, I remember being in grad school. Um, and it's funny because there's this push to pick uh, theoretical orientation, right? Um, <laughs> you got to pick one and, you know, they don't like eclectic. And so, you know, you got to pick one and immerse yourself in it. And I have always just, that has just never been me. Uh, one lane kind of thing. It just didn't fit. And my work in this community, community health organization, mental health organization, um, worked with adolescent sex offenders. Um, and so CBT was a very prominent uh, model and tool that was used. And so I remember after we had agreed that my internship was going to be with you, we went to meet again and we went to another restaurant and we were sitting down and talking about what I was hoping to get from it. And I remember saying to you, oh, and by the way, CBT is my theoretical orientation. And I just remember you being like, that's okay. We'll work on that. <laughs> And, and it's funny. And I just remember thinking like, oh, and, and yeah, so you introduced me to relational cultural theory and it just made sense. It didn't feel like a theory at all. It, it felt like my life. It felt like how I understood relationships. It, it, it felt like how I understood culture. It just felt it fit. And so I had this, but it, it felt like it felt a little isolating um, because not a lot of people had even heard of it, let alone talked about it. And when it's by the time I started meeting for my um, orientation class, I mean, not in internship class, my second internship class was taught by um, Mr. Kirk 
um, and I loved Kirk's class and he was going through and he's like, okay, we're going to talk about uh, theoretical orientations. And he said, and I have one, many of you probably haven't heard of it, but this is what I use. And I am intending that by the time I'm done, all of you will want to use it, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and then he said, relational culture theory. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel at home. Yes. And, and he and I both Kirk Shepard, we both had this moment of just like, I see you, I see you, you know, he was the teacher, I was the student, but we both kind of connected around this thing that just made sense. And we talked about how it just made sense that it wasn't like we were trying to fit things into a theory, but we felt that this theory really just understood how life works. And so I... I'm hoping that if there are any, yeah, you don't have to be a student. You can already be a a therapist or whatever clinician, but gives you something to look into. Jean Baker Miller's relational cultural theory, because to me, it just, it just makes sense. Um, So thank you for, you know, highlighting that. Welcome. And a shout out to Maureen Walker. She um, is one of the original theorists of relational cultural theory and Boy, she brings in the cultural piece, and she just ties it all together for me. And uh, her, Judith Jordan, and Amy Banks have just been such an inspiration. Yeah, Maureen Walker, she is very amazing. I haven't met her personally, but I do follow her uh, to the extent that I can on social media and things like that and reading her articles. She's got a brand new book out. I'll have to give you the name of it. Yes. Thank you. And when we get that, we can even put it in the show notes. So great. Um, so I'd like to ask, um, you do a lot of outputting, you know, you are training and giving what fills your cup. What do you do that helps you feel replenished, um, that helps you build and maintain resilience? The, what do you do to kind of, like I said, do the things for yourself that you're doing for so many? Yeah. So, um, this is going to be my fun fact about me. Then I realized it's not really fun. It's just a fact. So thank you, Jay, for helping me come up with a better fun fact. <laughs> so um, my not fun fact, but is a fact, is that um, I realized that from the time I was 12 year old, year, years old when my dad got sick and my mom had to start working two jobs until now, 45 years later or so, um, I've always had at least two hours a day with no other human beings around me at a minimum of two hours a day. And I didn't realize um, how important that was to refilling my cup until I actually lived with people who had jobs and I'd come home and they were like already there. And I'm like, what? No, (laughs) I haven't gotten my two hours of alone time, (laughs) but um, that is a gift that I still give myself every single day at least two hours of time without other human beings in it. Um, And then also, I jokingly say this, but it feeds my soul. I um, jog on a little mini tramp and watch some murder mystery, something where someone goes to jail. So I jog on a mini tramp and I watch a criminal go to jail every night before I go to bed. Yes. (laughs) Very soothing to my soul. Well, I'm going to... Wonderful friends and I theater, I go to lots of theater and cook dinner for friends or have them cook dinner for me. So awesome. I just want to clarify that a little mini tramp is a trampoline just because I know that. And I'm not sure if everybody else would have gotten that. So, um, just putting that out there that you can get the dicks for about $15 used. 
Yeah. That's awesome. When you talked about two hours a day with no other human being, uh, there was a part of me that instantly became jealous. Um, (laughs) And my husband, the producer sitting next to me is cracking up. Man, that sounds amazing. And what I realize is, um, you know, I am an extrovert, Um, you know, on this spectrum of life, I definitely fall towards the extroverted side. But I am now that I have taken this journey and I'm on this journey of authenticity, I am much more introverted than kind of the shape-shifting chameleon that I was before allowed me to realize. And so now that I've come to this realization, sometimes I just need silence and no people. And um, my life right now is just not conducive for that (laughs) with my twin toddler children and my my other son and working with my partner and being around people um, as a major component of what I do on a regular basis. That sounded like heaven, by the way. I just wanted to let you know that. I do love it, I must say. And you know... People often think I'm an extrovert, and on the Myers-Briggs, if you could be dead even, I'd be dead even, but since you can't be, I actually fall on the introvert side. Okay. Yeah, and most people don't know that, because when you see me, I'm on, and and yes, that works, but almost for every hour I'm on, I need about an hour off. That is such a great observation to make, and I... Like like I said, I self-admit that I am on the right side of the spectrum. I am an extrovert, but people do assume that when they see us, because we bring it. I can say that about us. We bring it. And so when we are in front of people, people are getting so much of us. They're getting so much of the good stuff of us, you know, and we we do. We We come and we come high energy. We come with just a lot. But what I am beginning to realize now that I am doing a lot more training, it takes so much out of me. And whereas I used to say, oh, if there was time in my workday, I could fill it. So yeah, I'll go do that three hour training. And then yeah, I'll do this. And then yeah, I'll see clients. And I'm starting to realize I walk away from that training experience depleted because I've given all, you know, I think that's one of the things that I, I endeavor to do. Um, did I give the people what joyfully is giving? Yeah, absolutely. It is joyful. And I go into every training situation preparing to say that I'm going to give the people what they need and I'm going to empty myself out because if I got it in me, for this particular situation, it's for them. But what people sometimes don't realize is that then you're empty. (laughs) So I've had to learn that I need to do things to replenish so that I can continue to give in healthy ways. So that totally makes sense. And so anything else, Mary, that you would want to share about your work as a resilience builder, a trauma specialist and trainer? I think just that I am blessed to be around other people with that same passion and um, what a gift it is when we can do what you and I did, which is step back and appreciate each other's gifts, support each other's gifts, and um, treat the people we're working with the way we would want them to treat the people they're serving. Yes. We're all 
servants to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we can celebrate that uh, and celebrate the differences among us, Claude Steele calls it um, viewing diversity as a resource. And he talks about how powerful that is and the science behind how powerful that is. And that also feeds my soul in watching, like watching you become who you become feeds my soul. And just, yeah, just watching and being a part of how today can, uh, can we work together to make the world a better place. Yes, thank you. That's so amazing. Um, A previous guest I've had on Sarah Buffy, you know, you came up and we've talked. And you know, we're very, very open with, you know, the role you've played. And, you know, if you think familially, you know, we say uh, Finding Hope Mary's mom, and Soul Bird and Labors of Love are her offspring. Um, But what we just as much from you all. And that's that's the beauty of this very reciprocal relationship is that um, one of the taglines for labors of love is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are far too many people who need us for it to become a competition of who is going to get the contract or the training and what I very much love about us. And even some of the newer people who have come into what my husband calls the trauma league. You know, we have people who are coming in, giving of themselves um, and their expertise and their talents and that we can rely on each other and lean on each other. And when we can't, we're saying, hey, call this person. They're awesome. Hey, check in with this person. And I, I love that. I hope we maintain that. And we have been able to thus far um, because it's such a joy to work with people who are not just like minded and like spirited, but who get it. And who are working to get it done, but also who hold us accountable. When I am not taking care of myself, I can count on Sarah Buffy saying, hey, (laughs) maybe you should slow down. You know, I can count on Amy Sullivan to say, how are you taking care of yourself? I can count on Mary to ask me about my family and just give me a pause to remember that I have a family. So for that, you know, I love us as the Trauma League. We're doing great work. Um, as we get ready to start wrapping up, I would love to hear about the fun, fun fact <laughs> that you would like to share with the listeners about, you know, something just interesting about yourself that helps paint a more well-rounded view of who Mary Vicario is. <laughs> so um, my fun, fun fact that Jay reminded me of it. <laughs> Maybe because it's not it's not that season, I didn't think of it. But I have been a diehard WNBA fan since it first started. In fact, I was a diehard um, fan of the league that existed before the WNBA. And um, I have front row seats right behind the bench for the Indiana Fever. And I have for over uh, for 18 years. They're having their 20th year anniversary. And um, I've been behind the bench cheering them on for... 18 of those. Wow. And God, I love that. I love that. That's fascinating. And, and I, you know, so <clears throat> if you listen to the episode on sports trauma, Jay is a huge, huge, huge sports fan. What I've always loved about him is he loves the game of basketball and gets very frustrated when people who say they love basketball don't like watching women play. 
So that's a whole different thing. Um, but he just loves the game of basketball. And so you graciously at one point allowed us to use some of your tickets um, on a date night. So we actually got to go to the fever game and we get there and it's all good. But then these seats are like, I hear every single word that takes place in the timeout huddle. Okay. So awesome, amazing seats. I felt like I was part of the team um, and really great. And you've done that for us a couple of times. So we really appreciate that and love that. Another season coming up. You let me know. I definitely will. So not only, you know, is it just that your love of the WNBA, but just the consistency in which you support um, support the the league and all of that is so amazing. So thank you for sharing that. So finally, Mary, how can people get in touch with you? If people heard this and they're intrigued or want to know more about you, can you tell them your website or any social media that you may have where they can maybe reach out to you? Sure. Um, uh, FindingOakConsulting.com is the website. I'm told I have social media platforms. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they are. I think I think I might have a Facebook account under Finding Hope. <laughs> um, but also Mary at FindingHopeConsulting.com so you can email me directly. Now, if you do, please know that um, I get many emails a day and actually someone reads my email for me and then um, helps me stay on top of it. As you well know, Lashonda. I do I know. <laughs> you've helped with that in the past. <laughs> it's the amazing thing when the torch of intern gets passed to the next person and you're like, uh-huh, I get it. But no, thank you. We will have Mary's information inside of our show notes so that if you would like to reach out to her, um, her email address and her website is there. Mary, thank you so much for being with us today as our guest. We are very appreciative. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. I am so thankful and I'm glad it was fun. To all of my listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in again. Don't forget, if you need to reach me, you can go to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget that we have our YouTube channel every Thursday. We put out a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to like, share, review the podcast. Continue to share. I have amazing guests and we have really great content. Um, And so until we connect again, be well.